2: Notre Dame fans, welcome back to another edition of the Irish Breakdown Podcast. It is Friday. It is our live podcast, and this is going to be a uh, a uh, sort of an open Friday. We're going to talk about whatever it is you all want to talk about, and. Um, a lot going on. We already have some questions going on. It's a busy time right now for Notre Dame. They just had their pro day on Wednesday, so a lot of players were a part of that. Some guys helped themselves. Some guys hurt themselves. We can talk a little bit about that uh, as we move forward. Uh, a lot of recruiting news going on for Notre Dame. A lot going on there. And, uh, of course, spring ball is hot and happening right now. So Notre Dame is three practices into the spring. We've seen some interesting things from the practices so far. Uh, we've seen some RPOs. We've seen some, uh, some stuff that looks like what Notre Dame has been doing. We're seeing some four down looks from the defense some three down looks from the defense. We're seeing, uh, the offense go deep a lot. So we can talk a lot about that. If you guys have questions about that as well. So let's kind of dive right in, uh, first of all, and you guys already have some questions up. So we'll just kind of get into some questions. If you, uh, Run out of questions early? We have obviously other topics that we can dive into as we as we go forward. So, and I see a question there about a player who I have yet to watch. So we'll watch a little bit of film uh, today and and uh, go over some of this stuff. So uh, I'm excited to get to it. I bet uh, Vince will not be with us today, so it's just going to be me. Vince is the head baseball coach at Riley High School here in South Bend. And they have a game today, so that is where uh, Vince is today. But of course, he'll be back, and he's gonna his his attendance, I guess, on the podcast over the next month or two is going to be a little bit more sporadic than it was before because of that, because of baseball season. Once baseball season's over, Vince will be back uh, back to our our normal our normal dealer who'll be on shows with me a lot. And then there'll be shows he'll do with other people that I won't be a part of. So uh, that's our plan. We also little house cleaning. We're excited to announce this week. We announced that Eric Rudder has joined the Irish breakdown staff. I'm very excited about that. He was sort of on a one month trial period. And I knew about a weekend that it was, it was going to be a no brainer that we were going to offer him and it's whether or not he was accepted, He accepted on the spot. So he is our re- new recruiting analyst And he is rocking and rolling on that as as he gets caught up to speed on Notre Dame's recruiting efforts and just kind of how everything's going and starts to build more relationships. We'll start having him on the the, the podcast more as well. So a lot going on. So let's let's get into some questions here. We're going to start off. Michael Collins. Michael's back. If Josh Lug projects to start at, at one of the guard positions this fall, what are the pros cons of him playing right tackle this spring? Michael, that's a really good question. I, I don't love this idea. I, I think that uh, I, I'm kind of back and forth on it. So the positives, let's look at the positives. Though. Number one is we don't know that a second tackle other than Luger Patterson is going to emerge. I, I think that's the one thing. So there's still a chance that Josh Lug starts at right tackle. You know, Brian Kelly says a lot of things that don't always come to, to fruition. And that's not a criticism because he's saying what he thinks going into spring. Well, circumstances may change and, and that may not be what they end up doing. And so you get into situation. Let's say Tosh Baker's not ready, or Blake Fisher's not ready, or you know maybe Blake Fisher needs to move to guard, or maybe you know there's an injury somewhere, and you realize that hey, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna have Josh start at tackle. Maybe Josh looks great at tackle, and Tosh Baker looks great at tackle, and you say you know what, let's move Jarrett Patterson to guard where he can be a little closer to the ball. There's all types of different things that happen. So it's not a guarantee that Josh Lugg's going to move to guard in the fall. I just think that's their hope. I think what they're hoping for, Michael, and I think that comment from Coach Kelly was more about what they're hoping happens and, and what they, they'd they like to see happen, meaning they want to see Tosh Baker step up and say, this is my job at left tackle. They they believe that, that Jarrett Patterson can handle that job. There's no question about it. But if you have a 6'4 guy with above average arm length, who's a really good athlete, or a 6'8 guy with great arm length, who's a really good athlete, you're going to want the 6'8 guy with really good arm length uh, playing left tackle. And I think that's where they would like to see Tosh take over. Now, if he's not ready for that, or if maybe they need to move him to right tackle, Jarrett plays left, and then you can move Josh in inside. The con of it is Josh Lugg is still a guy that, to me, has never been given an opportunity. He's sort of the Houston Griffith of the offense, where he hasn't been able to play just one position. He's played guard, he's played right tackle, he's played left guard, he's played center. He's kind of moved around, and my hope is that this spring was going to be an opportunity for him to get a lot of reps at the position that you're going to see him play in the fall, but it's hard to do that in in the staff's defense. It's hard to do that when you don't know who the other two or three starters in the lineup are going to be, and and I think that's the, the, the pickle that they find themselves in, and I also think that there's a lot more uncertainty at guard in that they don't know what they have there. They've moved moved Andrew Christophe to guard. They've moved Quinn Carroll to guard, at least for portions of practices. We're seeing Michael Carmody play center, guard, tackle. Uh, there's uh, you know Rocco Spindler's a freshman. I think there's a lot of uh, we Dylan Gibbons and, and and John Dirksen are the veterans, but they haven't played a ton of football. So I think in this instance, Michael, you don't really know what you have at guard in keeping Josh at right tackle, where he still may play. And if you have Tosh starts and gets hurt, you're going to move Josh Luck back out to tackle. The point is, you need to give those young guys an opportunity to say, okay, can you play guard or not? You know Josh can play guard, but can these other guys play guard? And so I think it's about establishing a depth chart even more than just finding your five. It's who can play where. Once you establish who can play where, then you start figuring out who's your one, who's your two, who's your three, who's left and who's right. So I think that's kind of why they're going about it, and it's not an ideal situation. But it's it's also that's kind of what you have to find yourself in when you lost four starters. You have to figure out who can play where, and those answers aren't aren't as easy as just say, okay, well, who's number two left guard? Slide him into the starting lineup. Who's number two right guard? Slide him and start. Lineup. It's just not how it works. So uh, hopefully they can start to find some answers sooner rather than later, and maybe in the final four or five practices of the spring, they feel great about Tosh Baker and and Blake Fisher and and some of those other guys that are playing tackle, and they feel like they can give Josh some work a guard. Hopefully he can do that and then kind of go into the offseason feeling good about where he's at. Jonathan uh, Hill-Chema, I know that you read a lot. Uh, you you post a lot on our, our YouTube channel, but th- I think this is the first time you've asked a question, so I appreciate, appreciate you coming on the live show and asking the question. Any news on Brendan Clark? The only news we've had on Brendan Clark is what Coach Kelly announced uh, at the beginning of spring practice, which is Brendan had a knee in, knee surgery, uh, this is something that goes back to his high school days, according to Coach Kelly, uh, that he had surgery on, I believe, between the ACC title game and the bowl game. And so he's in a situation where he's recovering from that. From what Brian Kelly said at the beginning of spring practice, he's going to be in a position by the end of the spring to start throwing, but it won't be in like any team settings. He's not going to be in the competition this spring uh, for the quarterback job. So he's going to have to have a really strong offseason And he's going to have to start off really, really well um, moving forward. So, uh, Jay, I see your question about Darren Agu. I'm going to get to that in a little bit because I got his film pulled up and we're going to watch his film together. I have not seen it, so we'll watch a little bit of his film together and share some thoughts there. Dylan uh, Jair Brown, his visit is this weekend, so he's not visited. Dylan Hoffman, here we go, some recruiting stuff. What 2022 receivers have visits scheduled for spring, summer? So I have my visit thing here. The only receiver that I know of for sure that has a visit scheduled so far, like the date is CJ Williams from California, which I was very happy to see. I know they're working on trying to get visits set up with Tyler Morris and uh, Xavion Bradshaw and Tobias Merriweather. And a lot of those kind of guys, those, that's the only one that I know for sure has a visit set up. I also know they're trying to work on setting up a visit with Jarrell Williams, Nicholas Anderson, or some other guys that are on the board. I'm really curious to see how that kind of shapes up because some of those guys to me should not be takes for Notre Dame because they already have a Maureen Walker. You don't take a Maureen Walker and those guys, you take one of those three guys and then you shoot for top players. But, uh, that's kind of where I'm at there. There may be more, but again, we're just kind of really starting to dive in headfirst to this recruiting coverage. And those things are starting to get announced. So Eric's going to get caught up on that uh, here very soon. And we'll have a much better idea of, of who is coming and when. And I would imagine that over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see a lot more players start setting up visits. And the interesting thing about this is you're going to start seeing how interested certain guys are about Notre Dame in this regard. So for example, Darius Clemens, we had an article on him the other day. You know He's already locking in some visits to schools. Notre Dame is not one of them, and the reason he does is because he's already been to Notre Dame multiple times. Well, he, he then said he may set up an unofficial visit at some point in time. Now, that all sounds good, but that makes me a little bit, a little bit concerned because if he was really serious about Notre Dame, he'd want to come back for an official visit is how I would think, and that's normally how it goes. But maybe this situation is different. The point being, as these kids start setting up visits, you're going to start seeing Notre Dame's priority list, And then also the players priority list. And that's the one thing that we haven't been able to know. Hey, where do they really stand with a kid? A lot of times you can, you can know where you stand by, you know, is a kid willing to come see you? And this was my argument about Landon Tangwall for like a year. Notre Dame kept pushing for Landon Tangwall. And I kept saying, look, this kid's made time to go to Penn state. This kid's made time to go to Michigan. He has not made time to come back to Notre Dame since he visited in March. That should tell you something. And and you know, the staff kept pushing on him and pushing on him and, when he picked another school, they were kind of left, you know, in, in a tough spot. So you have to be able to pay attention to that kind of stuff. And that's when when you don't have visits, it's harder to gauge that. Now that visits are opening back up, you start to see, okay, well, this kid's really serious about us because he immediately scheduled a visit with our program. That's when you'll start to get an idea of who's serious, really serious about your program. Jack Sullivan asks, would you rather have Jair Brown and Jaden Mangum? Or Tobias Merriweather and one of the big three running backs, which gr- group would be bigger for this class? Hmm. You know, I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Jair Brown and Jaden Mangum. Let's put that question back up. So basically, what you're saying, Jack, is would you rather have a top corner and a in a really high upside safety or a high upside receiver and a, a really good running back, right? So basically stud corner or stud back stud receiver or a you know high upside long rangey high upside safety or a long range high upside receiver so compliments on each side. I would rather go with the defense because for me, Number one, running back. I'd love to get a stud running back. I I think for me, if Notre Dame is going to take a second back in this class, he needs to be a top back. I think when you look at getting Chris Tyree in 2020, getting the two players, Audrick Estime and Logan Diggs in 2021, getting Jadarian Price at running back already in this class, they've done a very good job of restocking the depth chart. The only way I'm taking a second back is if it's a top player. so I wouldn't just take any any number two back, and I would love to get one of those big three. And I, I like Quinshawn Judkins, the kid that they offered from Alabama recently. He's a good player too. He reminds me, I the comp I used today with a, a friend of mine who, who called and asked me about him was, to me, he's a bigger, a little faster version of Torian Folston, and, and I'd take that all day. So if they if they offered him and or if they took him, I, I'd say, yeah, you really restocked your depth chart. But I don't think you necessarily need elite running backs to have an elite offense. And I also think running backs can develop differently. If you're recruiting the way you need to recruit on the offensive line at Notre Dame and you're running a good system. I mean, look at Kyron Williams. He wasn't a big time recruit coming out of high school. He was a three-star recruit. He's turned into a pretty darn good football player. So I I look. Josh Adams. Another guy wasn't a big time recruit. Dexter Williams was, and Josh Adams ended up being the better player at Notre Dame. They're both very good, but you know, Tony Jones was on pace for a thousand yards. if he got, didn't get hurt last year because he's playing behind a pretty good offensive line. In 2017, it didn't matter who they put at running back. It put Deion McIntosh a running back, and he would go off because of the offensive line. So I don't think you need a great running back. You need a good, talented running back, but you don't need a top 50 guy or top 100 guy. It'd be nice. always would like that guy, but you don't need it. Whereas in the secondary, I don't think you can scheme your way into success as much. You you can against the regular season teams in the in place for the most part, but when you get into the postseason and you get into the, the big games, whether it be a – a, you know a major bowl or whether it be the playoff or the national title game you that's where you kind of say okay we can't scheme our way into success anymore we have to have guys that can match up against those other teams and last year Notre Dame's secondary for with one well, exception just couldn't match up with Alabama so I, I want the guys that can match up on the on defense I can I can scheme my way into success on offense I mean we've seen that we see that year after year after year and I think that those guys, those are good football players. They already have, and there's other good players on the board. So give me the the high ceiling safety, which is what I believe Jane and Mangum is. Mangum is six three, six four, athletic, fluid. I think he's got another gear of speed left in him. Jair Brown, I, I don't consider him an elite corner. This would be even easier for me if you would have said like. Kamari Rogers. It would have been e- a lot easier for me to say, but give me the the high level corner and the high level, you know, the high upside safety over the offensive counterparts because I think with the way Notre Dame recruits the line, you can get away with not having an elite back in that group. So I, th- I think that answered your question. Dylan Hoffman. Any word on junior Tui Alamaka? I felt like we were coming on strong, but uh, has been quiet lately. Well, part of that, Dylan, is he just started his season. And so he's about, I think, two or three games into his junior season. So I don't, I don't, I think that's a big part of. It. We got to remember a lot of these West Coast schools and these West Coast kids are just now starting. their Jaden Mickey just started his season, these three games in. Um, Chance Tucker, I I spoke to to his dad the other day. They started their season. they are a couple games and he's doing well. So uh, Illinois started their season. So a lot of these states that didn't play in the fall are now. Virginia is another example. Are now playing their season. Well, when your season starts and you can't visit, recruiting isn't this huge priority for you. So I think right now uh, Junior's focusing on his season, and that's why we're not hearing a lot about him. I still feel Notre Dame's in a great place there. Uh, with all these linebackers, look, you've got two linebackers in the class, and there's a lot of guys on the board. You, you don't have all day to make a decision, but I feel good about where Notre Dame is, and I think the quietness has more with the fact that he's just focusing on his junior season. Okay, let's go to Pro Day. Here's a question from Jacob Foreman. Why would Kelly offer up an awkward and potentially harming opinion of Liam Eikenberg's NFL outlook, lack of athleticism to play left tackle, more of a right tackle? How should this be viewed by current players? I I did a little digging on this, and I I don't think it it really bothered anybody because they're kind of used to Coach Kelly saying things like this and sort of putting his foot in his mouth. I, I just, it was just an unnecessary statement. What 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 can what would bother me if I was in Liam Eikenberg's shoes? And is that you know you don't you don't ever offer up that kind of criticism of Ian Book. So why are you offering up that kind of criticism of me? And, and you know that's just not really his place. And I, I get the the supporters of Coach Kelly's comments and say, well, he was being honest. That's fine, but that's not necessarily your job NFL teams are going to evaluate the film and you can maybe say that privately if you want but you don't just get on the radio and say, you know the tv and say that it just was an unnecessary comment it was also a comment I don't necessarily agree with I mean look I put the numbers up on my site I mean Eli, if you look look at Liam Eikenberg's agility numbers which are level the athleticism and the quickness that we talk about if you go back the previous five drafts and look at the the offensive tackles taken in the first round of the draft. And then you compare that to what Liam Eikenberg did. I'm going to pull these numbers up while we're talking. He had the fourth best pro shuttle and the fourth best three cone drill of any offensive tackle. And, And I went back and looked at their pro days, combines. I looked at all of it in an attempt to try to, okay, give them the best number possible. For example, Ronnie Stanley ran terrible numbers at, a combine and then he went to the pro day and did better but liam Eikenberg still still blew him away i'm gonna pull this uh this up real quick so we can you, you guys you all can take a look at it so this is this is the um the 20 yard shuttle so this is all the first round draft picks that i actually tested in the last five previous five years and you'll see that liam Eikenberg's tied for fourth with jack conklin who with the um uh, uh where's he is he with cleveland now he was drafted by Tennessee but now he's with Cleveland then you go down a little bit further. This is the three cone drill. Again, finished fourth. You can see Ronnie Stanley way down here, okay, with a much lower number. And then the bench press, he was at thirty-three, which was significantly higher than anybody else. So, you know, I I, I didn't understand the athleticism comment. It just didn't to me didn't make a lot of sense. It just seemed unnecessary. If anything, you want to talk about you know why Lee Mikenberg's not a left tackle then. You know, maybe you can talk about his length, which was strange that his arm, his his wingspan and his arm length wasn't nearly as long as I thought it would be because it it looks longer. We had Jim Moore on the show uh, earlier in the week, and he he talked about he he liked his length. So that was a little surprising. I'm curious if if Liam's going to kind of have that redone. Maybe some scouts want to look at that again but that'd be the bigger issue to me. And, and, you know, it's, it's rare to see a left ta- a left tackle with that, with that short of arms. I think Joe Thomas was a guy that had pretty short arms. Uh, Jake Long had pretty short arms. So there's some, but there's not a lot. Usually you look for at least 34 inch arms. And that's the one thing that's different from Liam Eichenberg and a lot of those tackles that I talked about, but the athleticism criticism just didn't make a lot of sense to me uh, for, for the reasons that we talked about. And it was just an, un unne- to me, just an unnecessary comment from coach Kelly and, he tends to do that from time to time, you know, go back to his, you know, my guys versus Charlie guys comment. He, he tends to do that sometimes. And I just think he he's on the TV and he likes to give people, you know, what they want to hear. And it just it gets him in trouble sometimes. I, I wish he would think more about it, but that's that's just who he is. Let's go to Ryan M. With Ben Skoranek not being able to participate in the pro day, it's pretty known that he's not going to get drafted. Do you think he has to make the move to tight end to have a shot in the NFL? I, I think so. But even then, I don't I don't know how well his athleticism is going to project. That was one of the things. I was told by somebody in the Chicago area that one of the reasons that Ben wanted to leave Northwestern was they were trying to move him to tight end, and he didn't want to make that move. He's not a receiver. He doesn't get the separation at, at against ACC corners. He didn't get a lot of separation to make those kind of plays I just think he's a guy that's going to have to move into kind of an H back role. He's a pretty tough physical kid. What I don't know, however, Ryan, is will he, will he lose speed and athleticism if he has to bulk up enough to play tight end? That would be a question. Um, I just I don't view him as an NFL player. I just don't think he has athleticism for it. I think he's got great hands and great kid and hard worker and and all those types of things. But I just don't think he is a guy that athletically has that has that kind of skill. Tommy Leonard, do you think BK could have won a natty if he would have uh, been hired by any of the big three schools? No. I, this question was asked on Twitter. No, I don't think so, because I think the, some of the things that have held him back at Notre Dame would also hurt you at other schools. I think Brian Kelly would have done the same thing at Alabama and USC and Ohio State or Clemson, especially the first three that he w- he's done at Notre Dame, which is he'd have built them up really impressively. They'd be consistently 10-plus win teams. I don't think – I think what would have happened is – what he's done the last four years, I think he would have done sooner at those schools. I don't think we would have seen the eight and fives and those type of things at those schools. I just think the 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 talent base, you can build it up quicker and he would have inherited better rosters than what he inherited at Notre Dame for the most part. There's some top heavy players in Notre Dame, but the depth wasn't there. But I think if you're if you're going to recruit and win championships, or if you're going to win championships, you got to be a great recruiter as a head coach. And that's something Brian Kelly's never liked to do. Now, we're seeing him pick it up now, but let's see that continue for the next several months and not just be something he did for a month. Let's see it continue. I think some of the other things he's done, he's made some bad hires. He's made some great hires, but he's also made some bad hires that have set the program back. The Brian Van Gorder hire set the program back in a big, big way. Uh, you know, Paul Longo, who did some really good things for him as a strength coach early on, that he, he, it was time for him to move on several years before he should have done that. He's been slow to react in, in some of those kind of ways. Coaches he's kept on board who were good coaches but bad recruiters that he kept around for way too long. Those are the kind of things that, that would have hurt him even more at those other schools because there's so much turnover. That's one of the things. He's been protected a little bit at Notre Dame from that because you don't have the turnover on your roster as much as you have at those other schools. So Notre Dame can have a 17 man class and they're fine because that's all the room they have for some, if you have a 17 man class, at Alabama, you're woefully short of your numbers. Cause there's just so much roster turnover of some of those middle and lower level players. And, you know, they talk about all these five-star Alabama players, Alabama gets, and they do, but there's plenty of five stars they've got that are gone. The kid that they got a couple years ago from New Jersey, who was considered the number one player in the country, I think by two, four, seven, he didn't make it through a full year at Alabama. He's Went to Colorado. I think he's since been kicked out of Colorado. So you look and say, oh, that X amount of five stars. Well, Now all those guys are still there. So that's a part of it as well. So no, I don't. I think he would have been a he'd have been a top five coach, just like he is at Notre Dame at those places too. But I don't believe he won a national championship. I think this notion that Alabama wins just because they have better players than everybody else is completely misguided. And I think you just have to go back and look at their 2009 roster. You want to do something? If you're bored this weekend. Go count the number of four and five star players that were in the starting lineup for Alabama in 2009. And then go count the number of four and five star players that top 100 players that Notre Dame had in their starting lineup in 2009 and tell me there's a huge difference because there's not. You know, Alabama, I think Javier Arenas was a three star recruit. Kareem Jackson was a three star recruit. One of those guys, like his next best offer was like Florida International or something ridiculous like that. Uh, They had two outside linebackers. Eric Andrus was one. I think he was like a three-star recruit. They had another kid on the other side that was a two-star recruit, or maybe Eric Andrus was the two-star recruit. Go back and look at those. He's a phenomenal coach. The big classes started coming after they won, after the undefeated season in which they lost to Utah in in the Sugar Bowl, then after the national title. They didn't have their first number one class until after he already had a ring. And so it's not just to show up and win. Otherwise, why did Clemson go from 1981 to 2016 without winning a title? Clemson from 1981, the year that last year they won the title, to
0: 2016 in that stretch. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: or excuse me, 2013, when Dabo first started winning. From 81 to, to, to 2013, they had, I think, one season where they finished in the top 10. One. So Clemson isn't this easy juggernaut where any coach can win. You have to have a great coach. And Notre Dame's the same way. You can't just plug a coach in there and win, as we've seen. You need a great coach at all these places. And those guys are great coaches. And Brian Kelly's a really good coach. But to be a great coach, you have to do it all. And the fact that he doesn't recruit with the same passion or even volume that these other coaches do is something that holds him back. That's the difference between landing those one or two players to get you over the top. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy from big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed marketplace breaks it all down. So you don't have to listen to marketplace wherever you get your podcast. Jack Sullivan. What did you make of Blake Fisher seeing a first team rep at left tackle in the spring clips? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, number one, I don't make a whole lot of that early on because, number one, you're missing some guys, and number two, they're moving a lot of guys around. So you know, Andrew Kristoffic's playing guard and center. Michael Carmody, we've seen it, at tackle, he's also got some snaps at guard. So I, I wouldn't put a ton in that simply just because he took a rep, right, and, and we're going to see other guys do that. What, what I would say, Jack, is so I have had in the last couple of days, I've had about two or three different conversations with people that that are associated with some of the older linemen that are now gone that have come back to the program and when they come back they're like who's this who's this big kid you know who's this big this big freshman who's this 54 kid and they're like oh that's Blake Fisher and then they pay attention to him and and the, the feedback I constantly get is this kid's really good there's a lot of excitement about what Blake Fisher's done and it started in January you know when you have these big like 330 pound kids that are just bullies on the field. And I mean that complimentary. They just, they're just so much better than everyone else. A lot of times you show up and say, is this kid really going to grind? Is it going to work? Is it going to take him a while to figure some things out? We've seen some big guys at Notre Dame on both sides of the ball kind of need that time to figure out how to work. That wasn't an issue with Blake. From everything I'm told, uh, he put into work immediately and he's reshaped his body and he's still 320 plus, but he just, he looks different now. He's just reshaped it a lot. Um, Smart picks up the offense really quickly, from what I'm told. Just everything you want in an offensive tackle, and and he's impressed not just the current team, the current coaches, but guys who are gone who've come back and and seen him. So I think he's a legitimate contender to play this year, if not start this year. Will he start game one? That's tough to say, but they're going to give him every chance to say, "Hey, am I good enough?" Because he's earned it. It's not just because he's a top recruit it's that's the kind of work he's put in and the kind of talent he's shown so far so uh in that regards jack i i big picture i'm not going to put a lot of stock in who plays where and what clip because we don't know what's going on i mean sometimes you'll have your second team offensive line with your first team off skill players because your your line may be working on something else or you're just trying to get your you know your second team line some work so so I would encourage all of us to not put too much into what we see for a clip in these highlights. But that particular case is backed up by the sources I'm saying, which is Blake Fisher is going to push people to start. And if he doesn't start, I'll be shocked if he doesn't play. I could see him being like a Robert Hainsey type of situation, uh, you know, his freshman year when he got a chance to play. All right, here we go. Michael Collins asks, you've expertly, thank you, "uh, commented on the need for RPOs and others to get more involved in the, oh, that's one rock. The RBs are going to get their touches, may or his targets. How do you spread the rest of the plays? Well, number one, Michael, I don't necessarily agree with the premise that that those guys are going to get their touches and it's just going to spread it out. And here's what I mean by that, right? So you look at Kyron Williams this year, okay? He had, I'm pulling up the numbers, you know, he had 1,100 yards, had a great year. No, no question about it. And he obviously ate up a lot of the the plays. But as I've pointed out before, because of the offenses the way that it is, his yards per carry were way down. You know, he averaged 5.33 yards per carry this year. That's 0.6 yards less than Tony Jones Jr. had in 2019. That is the lowest yards per carry that Notre Dame has had from its starting running back since all the way back in 2014. Now, does that mean Kyron Williams isn't as good as those other backs? I think we can all agree that's not the case. It's because the offense that you're playing is forcing you to then run more plays, and you're just not as effective. So what happens is, is you know, he had 211 carries, for example. And you look at North Carolina last year. Michael Carter rushed for. I'm looking at it now. They both Michael Carter in 11 games rushed for 1245 yards. Javante Williams in 11 games rushed for 1,140 yards. You remember they didn't play in the bowl game. Kyron Williams in 12 games rushed for 1,125 yards. I think we can all agree that Notre Dame has a better offensive line than North Carolina. So they had two running backs that had more yards this season than Kyron Williams. Kyron Williams had 211 carries, Javante Williams had 157, and Michael Carter had 156. So when you spread the ball around, when you spread it out, when you spread the field when you make RPOs and all the different types of screens and and push the tempo a little bit, not only do you tend to get a few more plays per game because you are pushing the tempo, but you create a more explosive offense. So Kyron may not get the touches he got last year, but his yards are going to go up. You, You know what I mean? And so to me, I don't care about Kyron getting 211 touches next year I care about Kyron being able to maximize his potential as a player and not having a system that holds him back why can't he rush for 1200 yards on 150 carries as opposed to 1100 yards on 211 carries that comes as a product of your entire offensive philosophy and when you are spreading the ball around to Braden Lindsay to Xavier Watts to Jordan Johnson to Avery Davis and all those type of players you're spreading the field you're forcing defenses to widen by by running so many two and three tight end sets and then not throwing to your number two and three tight end, number one, you've told the defense there's really only three guys that are going to run a route. I broke this down at Irish breakdown recently where the number of routes that Kyron Williams ran and the and 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 Chris Tyree and the other running backs ran, the number of routes that the tight ends ran is per snap was lower than all the other top offenses, both of them. Tight end was a little closer, but but that was because Michael Mayer had a high route volume. Whereas Tommy Trumbull went from 40, I think 48 or 49% running a route per, per snap to in the 30s this year. So you know he's not a target on game plans. You know he's not a target. But, uh, Brock Wright hardly ever ran routes. So when you know your back's not gonna, I think the running backs in their name are like 31%, whereas North Carolina's running the 40s. The point being when you're in a 2-3 tight end set and you know that the number three tight end is not going to run a route, you know that the number two tight end will occasionally run a route, but not often, and you know the running back's not running a route, it's a whole lot easier to defend Michael Mayer and Kyron Williams or whoever, ever, whoever your number one receiver is. When you have five guys on the field that are eligible targets, you got to use those guys. Not every time, but more often than not, you got to use those guys. Alabama's tight ends had a, a higher route rate than Notre Dame's guys. That shouldn't be the case when you have the kind of talent Notre Dame has. So the point is, it's not about taking away Michael Mayer's touches. It's about creating an offense in which Michael uh, against like Kyron Williams, for example, doesn't need as many touches. So he's up in his yards per carry to like six and a half. So his 211 touches now comes down to like 175, and that's going to be broken down to Chris Tyree getting some carries and these other guys getting some carries. And that's really where you want to be to me as an offense is you want to be in that. You know, we've spread the ball around and, and we're, you know, we're, we're being more balanced and, and that's where I think Notre Dame needs to be. So it's, it's this notion that there's only one rock. Well, a lot of other teams do it. Ohio State does it. Ohio sp- State spreads the ball around extremely well. That's where Notre Dame has to be. I don't care about one guy. Michael Mayer's not going to catch 75 passes next year. There's plenty of opportunities for other guys to get the ball. There's plenty of opportunities for Notre Dame to become a more explosive offense, which then means you can't double-team Michael Mayer. It's going to be a lot harder to take him out of the game because now you have to run the risk of Braden Lindsay or Lawrence Keyes or Xavier Watts or Lorenzo Stiles or Jordan Johnson or Kevin Austin or some Avery Davis running by you. That's where you want to be. And that's why it's so important to get the RPOs in there. And the other thing about RPOs you have to understand is, to to wrap up, an RPO is a – you call a run play. So you're, you're going to give the ball to Kyron Williams. But if the defense wants to clog the box and they want to come aggressively, then you can pull the ball and get it outside. When teams have to respect that and they're staying out and now you're handing that ball off, now that safety, instead of being at the line of scrimmage by the time Kyron gets to the line of scrimmage, he's got to stay back. Now all of a sudden you're giving Kyron Williams three, four extra yards to room to work. As we saw last year, if Kyron Williams gets you in space more times than not, he's going to beat you. So this is something that actually makes those guys better. It doesn't take away from them. And we see that in every good offense, uh, every great offense that, that is out there. Devin and Ashley asks, um, here we go. So who you think honestly is the QB? You know, I think it's going to be Jack Cohn. And we talked about this yesterday. I I, I think there is a legitimate quarterback battle. I think they're giving Drew Pine an honest opportunity to battle for the job. If Tyler Buckner plays well enough, I think he'll get an honest shot to to battle for the job. Although, again, we need patience with him because he's played one year of football in the last three years. But I think at the end of the day, it's going to be Jack Cohn because I just think Jack Cohn is the better player today. I think Jack Cohn is bigger. I think he's more experienced. I think he has proven that he can make some of the plays. I think Drew Pine is a very similar player to Jack Cohn, but Jack Cohn has been doing it more. I think we've even seen from some of the highlights of that they're sending us. I mean, good Lord, unless they're putting every single deep ball in practice into the highlights, they're throwing the ball downfield a lot. He can do that. I think Drew Pine can do that, but I think Jack Cohn can definitely do that. And I have an article at irishbreakdown.com that, that kind of looks at even though he doesn't have like a huge arm, he's a very good deep ball thrower. And he's a very, because part of it's aggressiveness, accuracy, timing. And so I just think all those things are what I see from Jack Cohn that are why I like them getting him. And then the more I study the tape, excuse me, the more I liked him. Uh, Jonathan, I would get Eric on the mailbag. He's going to, that's going to happen soon, but today was not an option. So that's why he is not on the podcast today. Um Edward asks, and Edward, if you don't mind, can you can you kind of help me pronounce your last name in the comments? Can you just put your last name in there so I can so I can say that better? Because I don't want to butcher that. How did Javon McKinley do on the pro day workout? It wasn't a great day for Javon. He had some good testing numbers. Some of his some of his change of directions were were decent. Um, one of them was good. One of them was I think the three cone that he had was good. I'm pulling up the numbers now. The three cone numbers that he had were good, but the the um, the shuttle was not good. His vertical wasn't great. Javon had a 32 and a half inch vertical. He had a 436 in the 20 yard shuttle, which isn't great. He did not have a 68 flat in the three cone, which is really good movement, good change of direction. But the four five seven, and then he he fought the ball a lot, which is uncharacteristic because I don't I think he catches the ball really well, but he fought the ball a lot in the pro day, and so that I don't he measured in at just under six two, which also doesn't help. That thirty three inch arms, which is good, and he did twenty reps on the bench, which is good. So there were some things he did that were good, but he needed to catch the ball clean. He needed to have a day where. You know he went out and and ran good routes and looked quick and looked athletic and showed some explosiveness and he didn't do that. I've been told Javon's faster than a four five seven, so I just don't think he tested well that day. The problem, however, is there's no combine and you just have this one one thing. So if there's a team that likes him that wants to try to get him to work out again, if that's possible, maybe they could do that. But I don't think he really helped himself a whole lot with the pro day. I don't think he killed himself, but he needed a great day not assume he hurt himself. he needed a great day to really jump up uh to really jump up on people's list and and he just didn't do that unfortunately. how big could the self-guided visit be for Jair Brown for Notre Dame? do you think he will take an official visit to Notre Dame when it opens up I think that they've got a good shot. I think this visit right now ryan is is gonna determine in a lot of ways if they do have that official visit I think I think for Jair, it's going to be about getting to Notre Dame and saying, OK, could I see myself here? Can I fit into the town? Do I feel comfortable on campus? Uh, you know, you just sometimes you just get to a place. and You just have that feeling like, yeah, you know what? I feel good here. and I want to I want to dive more into this. I, I want to meet more students. I want to meet players. I want to meet the coaches. I want to do this. And you'll, you can get that from this kind of tour. That's why a lot of kids will come visit for games and, and, you know, when a kid visits for a game, they have some things with the staff that they'll do, but I mean, the coaches are focused on the game. That's a day where they get a walk around campus and see the atmosphere and see the Goog and see the Basilica and see the golden dome, Uh, you know, see the library, AKA touchdown, Jesus, see all that kind of stuff, go to the bookstore and you get a feel for like, you know, I really like this place. I want to come back and see it even further. And I think that's essentially what these self-guided tours are. They're accomplishing basically what you would have accomplished if you visited for a game, with the exception of you obviously don't get to see a game. And if things go well, he feels comfortable, he likes the community, the parts of the community that he gets to go see, then I think they'll have a shot to get him back. From what I'm told about Jair Brown and Kamari Rogers talking to a couple different sources, they see themselves as different type of kids. They are attracted to what makes Notre Dame different where this is what I'm told. I don't know this firsthand. This is what I've been told by a couple sources I trust. And what I mean by that is sometimes you get those kids that aren't originally from, you know, the Midwest and Jair Brown's, even though he's in Ohio now is from Louisiana. He hasn't lived in Ohio very long. You get these Southern kids or these kids from Texas or these kids out West that, that aren't from this area. And you've got to convince them that, that what Notre Dame is about is good for them. You have to convince them that the academics is worth it, that going to class is a good thing and all those types of things. You have to convince them of this is a good thing for you because Georgia and Clemson and these other programs are, are not pushing that. They're, they're going to put them on these majors that um, you know, just about playing football and getting a degree. And so some of these young people are, are, are attracted to that, and you have to convince them why it's a bad idea. From what I'm told with Jair and Kamari, it's the exact opposite there's a natural attraction to what makes Notre Dame different that, that has interested them. Now it's about selling them on the whole package. And so if he gets up to campus and he likes it and he fits in and those type of things, and he, and he can see himself here, then now you've given yourself a shot. It's big because now that sets you up to get that official visit. All right. Oh boy. Connor's going back, going back. You're making me relive a bad memory. Connor asked, Connor Patton asked, if you'll allow me a question about something old, what is your take on what happened during the Michigan 2019 game? Are there any lessons that could be useful moving forward? You know, to me, Connor, that game reminded me a lot of the Miami game from 2017. And, and what I mean by that is the environment affected the Notre Dame team. And what we we haven't always seen, I mean, the environment at Georgia didn't affect them. The We've seen them play in these big environments and it, it didn't affect them. But there's been to- too too many times, in my opinion, even in, during this great stretch, where they get into this situation and it just the moment seemed too big for them, or something was going on that kept them from getting to a rhythm. Miami was that way in 2017, and Michigan was that way. I mean, you just could watch the body language during the warmups. I mean, it was raining, it was cold, and it just looked like the Notre Dame players didn't want to be out there, and the Michigan players were embracing it. I mean, they were embracing the 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 opportunity, the moment. I had. It's a true story. I had somebody whose football knowledge is greater than mine, who I respect, came up to me before the game and was like, "I'm a little nervous about this game." Why? He goes, "They just don't look like they want to be out there." And that was before the game, and that's how they played. And I think, I think when something like that occurs, how you start the game is going to dictate whether that changes or not. And in the 2017 Miami game, I still, I will take this to my grave. No one can convince me otherwise because there's no evidence of it one way or the other. If Brandon Wimbush doesn't overthrow Economy St. Brown on that first drive, which would have been a touchdown, and instead you punt, if he hits EQ on that post route for a touchdown because he was open and Notre Dame goes up 7 nothing on Miami, that crowd gets quiet and Notre Dame rolls them. I truly believe that. That was not a good Miami team. As we found out when, when they played Pitt and, and they were winning games by a point or two points, they were better than Notre Dame that day, but the course of the season, they were not better than Notre Dame. And I think that touchdown would have taken all the, the atmosphere, the elements, the things that were bothering them would have taken a lot of that out of the out of the equation, and I think they would have played what they, what they were capable of playing. Same thing in 2019. Remember early in the game, Notre Dame blocked a punt. I think it was like Michigan's first or second possession. Notre Dame blocks a punt. They're about to get the ball deep in Michigan territory in a nothing-nothing game. And then they make a mistake. Somebody tries to pick it up. Michigan recovers it. And then Michigan run, goes down the field on the drive and scores. And I don't think Notre Dame ever recovered from that. You pick up the ball right there and you punch that thing in the end zone a couple of plays later. Now it's not as cold. It's not as wet. It's not as miserable. And so I think they're just that, that not getting off to that fast start prevented them from getting out of the funk that they started the game in. And I've heard a lot about that game from different sources. And that's just the one. The one common. I've heard all types of different things. The one common theme from all the different people I've talked to is they just weren't prepared to be there and to be in the elements and to be in, to play in a in that situation. They just they just didn't want to be there. And that that was unfortunate to hear. Uh, but I've heard it too many times to ignore it. Dylan Hoffman, how's Lindsay's been per, been performing so far? I see a lot of Avery Davis and Joe Wilkin in the highlights. We haven't seen well the, the the day two highlights. We saw a good chunk of Braden Lindsey. We saw him beating, getting deep for a touchdown. Him and Jack Cohn uh, connected on a deep ball. I mean, I just kind of think that's just how they do it. I haven't heard a lot about Braden so far. We're only three practices in. The good news for me is he's been at every practice. That's to me. That's the we know what Braden Lindsey can do when he's healthy. I think the only thing that I care about right now, if if I'm if, if I if I had a source that I could talk to and he gives me a complete rundown of the whole practice, the only thing I'd ask about Brayden Lindsey is. Was he healthy? Was he out there? Okay, cool. Move on, because I know what he can do. So, um, you know, I, I just I feel like if he can just be healthy, that that's going to be the thing for me. John, that asks, is it me or is Drew Pine filling out? Yeah, he's starting to fill out. I think part of that's rib pads and some other things. He's he's getting there. I still I still wonder if he's a year away physically from being ready to really carry that carry that load. Dylan Hoffman asks, how do you see carries being split between Tyree and Williams this year? You know, I would actually see like to see, I would like to see Chris Tyree's carry, or excuse me, Kyron Williams' carries go down a little bit, and his touches overall touches go up a little bit. Meaning, I'd like to see him a little bit more in the pass game, uh, the screen game, getting him in space because he is an elusive player. I think Kyron's more elusive than Chris Tyree. I think Chris Tyree is more explosive. He's more of a, you know, you give him a crease between the tackles and he's going to go. If you look at Kyron's two biggest plays this year. They were both outside. One was a screen, the screen he had against Duke that he went for seventy-five yards, and the other was a sweep play against Clemson. And again, it was an outside play. It was outside, you know. It was a, I think it was a, might have been a buck sweep or just an outside zone. I have to go back and look. I can't remember if they pulled the guards or not. But it was an outside play where he could kind of get in space and he could get up the second level and make that safety miss. If you remember when what he did to Nolan Turner on that play, got him about fifteen yards downfield, gave him a little move. Uh, and 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 beat him. So I, I think that was an um, an impressive thing to see, and that's that's what you want to see from him. So I'd like to see him maybe get a few more catches, and then Chris Tyree get some more of those snaps. I'd like to see scenarios where you use them together, and you've got Kyron as kind of a lead blocker slash. You know, he can still run it, but lead blocker slash catch the ball out of the backfield, maybe line him up in the slot and give him some quick throws. So maybe th- those throws, uh, those plays that otherwise might have been runs are now catches so a swing screen instead of an outside zone uh, a play where you can get him in space get the tight ends and receivers blocking him, if that makes sense so that's just kind of balancing up how he's getting touches but and then of course you want to get Chris Tyree more touches I mean look Kyron Williams is your number one back I don't, I don't no one's debating that no one's debating that he shouldn't get touches the question is is are you you should be giving Chris Tyree more touches as well get him if he's not getting seven to 10 touches a game on offense and I'm not talking about special teams on offense then you're just not doing it right in my opinion they can both get touches go at a better tempo attack teams more because what happens is if you're aggressive early and you're putting the ball in the end zone now your defense is forcing more outs because now the offense is, is a little bit more one-dimensional because they got to play catch up now your defense can really pin it back and now that's where your offense gets those extra opportunities so you know I look Going 15 plays on a drive and eating up a ton of clock is great, and that can beat Louisville, and that can beat Duke, and that, but that's not beating Bama. It's just not. We saw it, right? We saw it in the in the in the Sugar Bowl no, or the Rose Bowl. Notre Dame did everything that they wanted to do, eat up clock, run the ball. They had over 100 yards rushing in the first half. They had seven points. That's it. You're not winning those games that way. This isn't 1988. You're not winning those games low scoring anymore. You have to be able to score, and. Getting more playmakers involved in the offense is a great way to do that. Plus, you get Kyron fresh for the entire year, which is, uh, or at least a better chance of getting him fresh. Remember, he started to get a little banged up late in the year, got banged up against Boston College. You know, maybe you could take some of that wear and tear off of him a little bit. Uh, Big Red 572005 asks If you had to pick one aspect of the Notre Dame offense to improve exponentially, where or what would it be? So, are you, if you're talking about, you know, a run, pass, something like that, to me, it would be, I want to see an offense that's more efficient and explosive in the pass game. And the reason I say that is, is because I believe if you look at Notre Dame's numbers and you compare it to other top programs, and and I've done this somewhat recently at our breakdown, you know, those teams are averaging minimum eight yards per attempt, but the, the, the teams that aren't running, like Clemson's like in the eights because they're a pure spread team. And they throw a ton of screens and stuff behind the lines, which is going to bring your yards per attempt down. But the teams that are more pro style in their attack, like Alabama, Ohio State, uh, teams that are Oklahoma's an air raid. But I would view that as more pro style than than a pure college spread. Those teams are up nine, 10, 11 yards per pass attempt where Notre Dame's in the sevens. And the only time Ian Book was ever really above 8.0 was was really his first year when Notre Dame was, was running a lot of RPOs. And so I'd like to see them kind of get back more to that. He was 8.0 this year, 7.6 last year, and then he was 8.4 in 2018. But he was at like 8.9 in the regular season as a starter. He had a – remember he had a short throw for a touchdown against – I think it was Vanderbilt where he came off the bench, the bench and threw, threw a threw a pass there. Um I'm actually going to look that up because now that's kind of in my head and I want to remember when that was. Yeah, Vanderbilt. He threw a three-yard pass. He threw three three attempts for uh, three completions for 13 yards, 4.3 attempt because he was coming in the red zone, and uh, you know, so that dragged his number down. But you look at the rest of the year, he was at once he got in the starting lineup, he was nine six eight four seven seven eight three ten o ten one seven nine nine o. That's a much better yards per attempt and what that does and why that matters is that if you're more efficient in the pass game and more explosive in the pass game, it makes you better on early downs. It makes you more balanced on early downs. So you're not throwing as many incompletions on early downs, which then kind of throws off your whole series, but you're getting those four five, six yard gains on first down with RPOs or with screens. Right. And then as you're more efficient and more explosive with the pass game, now that forces the defense to widen. And that's the whole point I keep talking about. If you're a 2 3 tight end set and you're not throwing out of that, and you're just those guys are always reduced and kind of in a box, it condenses the whole field for the defense. It gives them less ground they have to cover, which means they're closer to your running backs when your running backs get through those holes. It means it's a lot easier for them to outnumber you in the box by spreading the field and forcing them to defend the entire width of the field. See, so that's what Notre Dame doesn't do. They don't do a good enough job of forcing teams to defend the entire width and length of the field because they don't have an overly explosive pass game and they don't have much of a perimeter pass game. And and so by doing that, it makes it easier to defend the run game. If you became more efficient and explosive with your pass game, now all of a sudden they have to they have to bump those backers out a little bit, at least one of them. Those safeties can't come downhill as aggressively. And now all of a sudden. Kyron Williams' normal carry, which is going for five, six yards before both safeties you know, can de- uh, come down on them, now they're from more depth. And now that five, six-yard gain turns into a 15, 20-yard gain, or if he can make a guy miss, a, a touchdown or a huge play. And and that's why it matters. Or in Chris Tyree's case, that extra crease is the difference between an eight-yard gain and a touchdown. And so that's why, to me, if you if you become a more efficient and explosive pass game – then all of a sudden that changes everything that you're doing as a football team because you have now you've now become a team that you have to a defense has to defend the whole field. And and that's just not something that Notre Dame has done enough of. And I'm gonna try to find those numbers. I did a breakdown of this recently, and, and I'm gonna try to find that as we're talking. Um actually here here it is. So let's uh, let's pull that up. So I'm gonna just show you here as an example of Nick's. Uh, we we played that for Coach Saban's comments uh earlier in the week where he he talked about I'm gonna pull it up all the way so you can see it. So this is Alabama's numbers since since oh nine. you see the big jump in points per game. You see the big jump in yards per game. You see the big jump in yards per play. Their rushing yards per play has been about the same, right? You see that over here and this and then their rushing yards have gone down. What's been the big jump is they were kind of in that eight to eight six range every year and then all of a sudden boom the last 2 3 years they've just had this big jump because they've developed a more explosive and efficient pass game. And if you look at Notre Dame compared to those teams way down, you know, so so this is the last three national title teams. The individual seasons, Notre Dame's way down in points, way down in yards per game, way down in yards per play, but if you look at their rushing numbers, they're they're right on point with the last two national title teams. They've actually rushed for more yards and they're right on par for yards per rush right? The big difference is over here in the yards per attempt and the yards per completion. Now again, Clemson's a little different because Clemson is a traditional spread team and a traditional spread team is going to throw a lot more throws behind the line, which means fewer yards per attempt, but their their efficiency is still very good. And that's the thing that you have to look at. So those are the numbers that to me, Notre Dame has to get a lot better with if they're going to take their offense to that next level so hopefully big red that answers your question if you meant it in a different way just re-ask the question and I'll answer it specifically how you wanted it all right Ryan McCarty asks do you think the staff will include Logan Diggs and Audrick Estime in the run game a decent amount or will the carries be given to Kyron Tyree and Sibo? Uh, Ryan, it's too early to say that because we haven't seen those kids play yet. And, and to me, it'd be unfair to them to start talking about what they will or won't have. I would say I would imagine that those guys will have a somewhat limited role next year. Give them some tech carries in the red zone, short yardage. Definitely get them in some some carries when you're hopefully blowing teams out. But if those guys show up and beat people out, then they're going to play. I, I'm all about competition, and I love Chris Tyree. I love Cardin Williams. But if two guys come in and they're better than them, then you play the better players. I I I've argued that at receiver. I can't then not argue that at running back and another position. So uh, don't get your shot. I think it's going to be hard for him because those two, three kids are pretty good football players, especially the first two. All right. Nick Jeffers asks, this is a good question. Regarding all the players talking about how much simpler Freeman's defense is versus Clark Lee's. Doesn't a defense become easier to scheme against if there's only one or two reads to be made? Is this good? I think you're misunderstanding what they're talking about from a, a simpler thing. So you can run a lot of different looks, and Marcus Freeman will show defenses a lot of different offenses, a lot of different looks. Here's where it's simpler. Here's the difference. Clark Lee will make a call, and the slightest motion or shift or or or, or anything any kind of back movement any kind of motion anything like that they have to audible there's a lot of checks involved so it's not as simple as just hey we made the call and now go so not only do you have to know a lot of calls but now you have to know I got to change my call based on this there's a lot more pre-snap movement a lot more pre-snap adjustments and so I think that is kind of the thing that's hurt Notre Dame and then when teams would play really tempo if you remember, Notre Dame's had problems defending mobile quarterbacks, and a big part of that is is because a lot of times they just weren't lined up correctly. I go back to the Louisville game. You want an example of this? Go back to the Louisville game the beginning of 2019 and watch how many times Notre Dame just had no one to account for the quarterback because they weren't able to make enough of the checks, whereas with Marcus Freeman's defense, and it's not better or worse, it's just different. It's more about we get our call, and you're you're. this is the call. Just this is what we're doing. Go make a play. And if they make this motion or jip, don't worry, we have somebody count for that. I think that's really where the difference comes into here, Nick. And and that's 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 what we're looking for. And you talk about if there's only one or two reads to be made, it's one or two reads per call. It's not one or two reads, period. So it's like we have ten calls on defense, but then of those ten calls, we have five or six different checks that we have may have to make within those ten calls. Whereas now it's you still have ten calls but there's only one or two checks depending on what they're doing. That's the simpler part. So hopefully that that makes it uh, a little bit more understandable. And I think the other thing, too, with this, Nick, is this is especially more effective when you're playing tempo teams. And we even saw it against Alabama. You know, Alabama just with a lot of their motions and different things. Notre Dame was just out of position a lot. And they were really smart about how they attacked Notre Dame. They knew that, hey, if we motion, if we do this kind of adjustment, we know that it's going to force Notre Dame to completely change what they do defensively. And then they would they would do that, and then kind of go away from it. and And that's something that I think hurt Notre Dame in some of those games. And it hurt him against it hurt him against teams that um, you know hurt him against teams that to me would push the tempo as well. We saw Clemson do that to him a little bit in the in the rematch. Here we go. It's a good one. Robert asks, Brian, except for the past year, Notre Dame has finished the season on the road since 1994. Notre Dame has finished 10 and 16 in those games. Do you think Notre Dame will have less games on the West Coast to end the year? I hope so. This is another – Robert, this is another one of the reasons I don't care about the Stanford series. I think the the desire to be on the West Coast to go recruit, I get it. But to me, with how easy it is to fly nowadays, you don't have to be on the – West. if you finish a game in South Bend, Indiana – you know, you're you're flying from what San Francisco down to LA is like what less than an hour flight. Okay, so now it's a three-hour flight from from South Bend to, to LA. I just don't think it adds as much value as you as you think it does, or at least as it did 20 years ago. Twenty years ago it made sense because traveling was different back then. Now, especially here's the other thing too. Back when this first started, Notre Dame was finishing its class after the season. It used to be where And we've talked about this. And when I was at blue and gold with Lou Samoji, he would talk about this. He would say, like the banquet back in the eighties was this huge deal because the vast majority of your class would be from that banquet because most of them had not committed yet. And so from that banquet in December till signing day in February is when you closed. Now most of your class is done. So you're literally going to play out in Stanford every other year so that you can what get a jump on the juniors? I just don't think it's necessary. To your point, I think it adds a lot of unnecessary late-season travel. And if Stanford doesn't want to host a game against Notre Dame in October, then stop playing Stanford. I don't care. I don't mind the USC game as much because it's every other year and you can you can finagle your sis, your schedule a little bit to where maybe you have a couple home games before. That game's a little bit different, but I don't care about playing Stanford, and I especially now that Stanford has sort of de-emphasized football a little bit, in my opinion. And, and especially since they're just not as good. It was value to you when Stanford was really good because it gave you a big late-season win. But what did beating 4-8 Stanford do for Notre Dame at the end of the 2019 season? Nothing. So, yeah, to your point, I'd like to see Notre Dame start playing more home games in November and and also not ending the season on a West Coast trip every year. So uh, it's a great question. Um, you and I are on the, the same page on that. All right. Ryan McCarty. Do you think Notre Dame has any commits that will take visits to other schools when it opens up or are all the commits solid in their commitment to Notre Dame? Ryan, this is a good question. Also, I I don't know of anyone that will take commitments. And part of that is because of Notre Dame's philosophy when it comes to accepting public commitments. I think we talked about this in last week's mailbag, maybe it was the week before, but Notre Dame, if a kid says to Notre Dame, hey, I want to commit, but I don't want to. But I still want to take other visits. More often than not, they won't. They won't take a public commitment from that player. And if a kid does visit, then they'll say, "Look, yeah, you you you're, you say you're committed, but you know you're visiting other schools. We're we're recruiting your position." And more often than not, Notre Dame has the leverage to do that. So will will kids do that? Perhaps I don't know who that would be, but I I would think that they took those players' commitments because they think those guys are set. Now the other thing to factor into it is. When you talk about opening things back up because guys can't take visits, I think that's more risky for local schools that have local players. I think there's more local kids making commitments to in-state schools and then hoping that maybe there's something bigger out there than a kid. Like take and Price for example from Texas, he can visit any any school in Texas he wants. Why would he commit to Notre Dame if he wanted to visit schools? He can he can go visit anytime he wants. I think he picked Notre Dame because that was the place for him. So could kids take visits? Absolutely. I don't think we'll see it as much with Notre Dame commits as we might see with other, uh, with other schools, in, in my opinion. Um, Vincent, Vincent Roberto. Hey, I got to respond to your email, by the way. I do have that. That's on my to-do list for this weekend. So I, I'm glad you asked this question. Even though it's early, is there any word on how much interest Dante Moore has in Notre Dame? Oh, I, I very little knowledge of this other than we've just heard from talking to some people close to him that he likes Notre Dame. I don't know if, I think it's still kind of early, but there is interest there. There is a relationship there and he's really, really good. All right. Four horsemen. That's one. That wasn't the one, but this is a good one too. Here we go. Um, Any four horsemen? any insight as to how much Bayless and his team work with the other coaches during the recruiting process for things like long-term projection? Does Bayless ever talk to recruits? Now, Bayless does not talk to recruits and like he's not picking up the phone and like, hey, man, what's going on? You should come to Notre Dame. That's not his deal. But Matt Bayless has a huge role in who Notre Dame offers and who Notre Dame recruits. So the the Notre Dame coaches have, I've had conversation with Notre Dame coaches where they have said, this is true. We're, we have to see what Coach Bayless thinks before we make a move on him. Or, you know, I was unsure of this, but Coach Bayless really liked him. And so we made a move and it's essentially the, the situation of, Hey, if I have this lineman who's 255 pounds, but super athletic. And then I, he meets coach Bayless and he kind of eyes him up and looks at him and talks to him. Say, Hey, you know what? We can get this kid up to 300 pounds and he's going to be just as explosive as now. Then they're going to be like, cool, let's roll. Let's go get that kid. But if coach Bayless says, Hey, look, he doesn't have the frame. He doesn't have this. He's just not going to get the weight. He's he's too stiff or whatever. Then they will be, they'll, they'll, rethink recruiting that kid. He is incredibly well respected by the Notre Dame coaching staff and by the Notre Dame players. So he has a big, big role and he's very involved in the recruiting process from that standpoint. Again, he's not involved in convincing kids to come to Notre Dame. I don't even know if he can do that, but he definitely, when he meets these kids on campus and those types of things, he'll give feedback to the coaches as to, hey, is this a guy that we want or not? That's a question I imagine a follow up. All right, Steve O'Matic. All right, is this the Steve O'Matic from Rivals back in the day? Long time, no talk to. If so, uh, as of today, what's your projected too deep at the W, Z, and X receiver spots respectively come the fall? Well, the Steve, the hard part about this is, is I don't know the health status of Kevin Austin. I would imagine that Kevin Austin is going to be in that conversation somewhere, but right now let's leave him off because we don't know his health status. Right now, I think the top two W's are. Uh, Joe Wilkins and uh, Xavier Watts, from what I'm told. That's where Xavier Watts has been playing, although he's moving around a lot. Um, at X, I think we're going to see Jordan Johnson. And I think we'll also see J- Joe Wilkins there as well. But we'll see Jordan Johnson and Lorenzo Styles. I think, are two guys battling for that job at X. And at Z, it's going to be Avery Davis and Lawrence Keys. Now, here's a little bit of some... some um, some intel I've received recently. So apparently what coach Alexander and some of the other coaches are saying to the receivers is that the intention this year is to be deeper. They understand that in past they've had these big power forwards at receiver. And although they still like those guys, they don't have as much of that. They have a lot of different unique skill sets and there is a desire. This is what I'm being told. We'll see if this projects or not to, to play more depth. Now, the way you do that, Steve, and I think if if you, you you know this, the way that works is you don't just have two w's, two x's, and two z's. You have to have guys that can play both. So you know let's say Jordan Johnson was playing X with Lorenzo Styles, and they're both ready to play. And there's a scenario in which you you know you need to be able to move Jordan backside and have Lorenzo on the field together. There may be times when you want to have Avery Davis and Lawrence Keys on the field together for different types of, of situations, or you may want Kevin Austin and Xavier Watts on the field together. So my understanding is, and we've seen this a little bit in the film, a guy like Xavier Watts, for example, who may be starting as a W to start off the spring, isn't just playing W. And I think that's going to be something that's going to be different with this offense this year that we've seen in the past, where in the past, if you were a W, you were a W. If you were an X, you were an X. My understanding is talking to different sources is that we're going to see a lot more interchangeableness. I think I just made that word up potentially uh, at the receiver position, which is going to make it a little bit harder to say who's the one or two here. I think what I will say it this way perhaps is a little bit easier. We're going to see Jordan Johnson play a lot. We're going to see Avery Davis play a lot. We're going to see Xavier Watts play. We're going to see Lawrence Keyes play, and we're going to see Joe Wilkins play. And then if Lorenzo Styles comes along he's going to get his shot and then Kevin Austin will get a shot now if Kevin Austin and Lorenzo Styles both crack the rotation you can't go seven deep at receiver somebody's going to have to not play as much but right now we just don't know where things stand with those with those guys all right Dylan Hoffman do you predict that some of the linebackers in the 2022 class will see a lot of time as freshmen and sophomores based on the low numbers in the 21 class I think that depends on on whether or not some of the players that have gained extra eligibility come back. So Bo Bauer was expected, and Shane Simon were both supposed to be done at Notre Dame after this upcoming season. Well, because of the COVID year, they both now ha- have extra years of eligibility. I think it's going to be, to see a lot of playing time, that's going to be a little tough. You're going to have guys like J.D. Bertrand, Osita Aguanu, uh, Maris Luefow are going to be still on the team then. Jack Kaiser still going to have eligibility in those two seasons. And then in 2022, when those guys are freshmen, you, there's a good chance you could see Bo Bauer and potentially see Shane Simon, depending on how he plays this year. So it'll be a little tougher. Plus, you have Prince Colley at Rover. It's going to be tough for those guys to necessarily play as freshmen and sophomores. But having said that, the talent level that Notre Dame is bringing in, they could beat those guys out. I mean, there, there's no doubt. So I guess to answer the question, Dylan, they're not going to have to play as freshmen and sophomores. But depending on who Notre Dame finishes his class out with, there's going to be guys that have a shot to play a lot earlier, even if a lot of those other players come back. So that, that, that's going to make this interesting. All right. All right. So here we go. Let's get back to uh, some of these questions. A lot of great questions today, y'all. I really appreciate appreciate y'all being here. It's a little, a little different when, when Vince isn't here, so there's a little bit less uh, back and forth. All right. Mule uh, Skinner... Um, I did address that Liam Eikenberg thing. Uh, I don't really want to get into it again because I don't want to go negative again. But it was a it was a poor comment by uh, by coach. Uh, this is going to play again. This will be up on the YouTube channel, so make sure you listen to it. And if you have any questions, just hit me up, and I'll we can further discuss it. Um, here we go, Ryan McCarty. Here here's a good question: Who is the most effective recruiter on the offensive side of the ball in your opinion so far? Right now, I mean, the most effective would refer to who's getting the most players. And I would say I'd probably give that to Jeff Quinn right now based on just last year's class. But I honestly think I'm I've said this before. I really like what I'm seeing from Tommy Reese as a recruiter. He still has a lot to learn as a recruiter, but I've always said if you have personality, if you have a a plan and if you work hard, you can be a really, really good recruiter. And from everything I'm, I've been told so far, from and this isn't from Notre Dame people because I don't really care what they say. Of course, they're always going to tell us everything's wonderful. I'm talking about talking to high school coaches, talking to recruits, talking to parents. Coach Reese has been a very effective recruiter individually. The problem that Notre Dame is having as a staff is there's not the same level of organization and teamwork on the offensive side as there is on the defensive side, and not everybody on offense is a grinder. So that's hurting Coach Reese in regards to the type of offensive class he's putting together, but he's certainly putting in the work. So I have a feeling that while Jeff Quinn has the most, the best recent success, maybe Lance Taylor are kind of a close second. Tommy Reese is their most aggressive and diligent recruiter. And I think connects with a a lot of young players. Ryan McCarty, Trimble was open enough to get the ball more this year. He just wasn't seen as a big target by book. I went to the pit game this year and Trimble was open in the end zone on the mayor TD agree. And that was a big part of it. Now, his route production went down. As as I said before, he was at, and so basically how Pro Football Focus does this is is they say the number of snaps and then the number of times they ran a route, number of times they blocked, and the run, number of times they pass blocked. So if you take the number of times he was in a route, combine it, you know, divide it by the number of total snaps, he was at like 48, 49% of the time he would, when he was on the field, he would run a route in 2019. This year it dropped in the 30s and it was like 38, 39. That's a big drop off. So to your point, he was used in the pass game, but just not enough. And to your, and to even make it worse, he wasn't targeted nearly enough. And when he did get targeted, more often than not, he made pretty big plays. And even a play that got taken back, he made that great fourth down conversion in the in the ACC championship game that that got negated. But um, you know, obviously, he he's, he should have been used a lot more. Sevchek, okay, thanks, Edward. I appreciate that, Sevchek. I will definitely get that in there. Thank you for that. Jack Foot Is this Kyron Williams' last year at Notre Dame if he has another good season? I would say yes. Just the nature of that position, guys just don't stay very long. Now, I have no inside information about this, the, so this is my opinion completely, but I would say yes, this is going to be his last year if he has another good season. Running backs tend to not stay as long as they used to. I don't think Kyron views himself for if he's getting representatives or or people advising, he's probably never going to be like a first round pick. Not many running backs are anymore. But I think if if he's used the way that I hope he is this year as a runner and a pass catcher, I mean I could see teams falling in love with him a lot, like they fell in love with the kid from LSU, Clyde Edwards Alaire last year. Uh, but the the other part of this too is, you know, you look at you look at at a running back, how much shelf life do they have? That's another part of the argument. And if he has another thousand yard season and you've got Chris Tyree there and you've got these other up and coming backs, it's like if you're loyal to your program and and I think Kyron loves Notre Dame, part of what makes you, you're going to factor in, okay, do I really want to leave my team with no running back? He's going to look at the depth chart and be like, if I left, they're going to be okay. I think that's another thing that can factor into these people. Um, See here uh cone is not very accurate with the long ball if i remember correctly with the tape i disagree with you strongly on that uh mule so i'll ask you to do me a favor go look at the article i have on the front page of irishbreakdown.com where i talk about jack Cohn's going to help notre dame with the deep ball read that uh take a peek at it kind of digest it check out some of that film and if you still have that same feeling let's come back next friday on the live chat and we'll have a further discussion about it and and we'll, we'll dive into a little bit um, Ryan Horn, what happens if Mayer has a sophomore slump? Can Takis carry a big flow? Does that have a huge impact on run game? Appreciate your thoughts. I just don't see that happening with Michael Mayer but if we're going to accept, accept your premise I think they'll be okay. I, I think there's plenty of tight ends with not just George Takis but I, I love what I'm hearing from Kane Barong. He was a, I mean, it, it, SIL American had him as like the, I think the number 59 player in the country. This is a very talented player, strong blocker, very good athlete. He's over 6'3, almost 6'4. He's over 240. He's about 240 pounds now. As um, a matter of fact, I was told by a source that Notre Dame asked him to drop a couple pounds because he would put on, like, he was up to 246 of good weight, but they wanted him a, just a little lighter because they want him to be running around and running a lot of routes. So I think with Takis, with Kevin Bauman, with Michael Mayer, I mean, excuse me, with Cain uh, Barong, Notre Dame's still going to be good at tight end if if Michael Mayer has a sophomore slump. I think where you, what you, what it would alter is I think we would see less 12 and 13 personnel if Michael Mayer took a step back. And we'd see more 11 personnel, maybe some 20 personnel. 11 personnel is one back, one tight end, three receivers. 20 personnel is two backs, no tight ends, three receivers. We could see some 21 personnel, two backs, one tight end, two receivers. I think you'll see some of that stuff um, as opposed to, as opposed to uh, just, you know, I think that would be the biggest impact of, of him having a sophomore slump. But I just, I don't see that happening. Eric Hockenberry asks, how does the rover position change with Freeman coming in? You know, Eric, to be honest with you, I think it depends on what position they call the rover. And this is this is my big question I'm hoping to get answered. And I wish we, we you know, usually we have like the, um, they have the coaches clinic in March. They're not going to have that this year, I don't believe. But, you know, we'd get on campus and be able to ask some of these questions. What I don't know is—is is the rover going to be in a four-two-five? That player, and then what do they do when they go to a three-three-five? Is the rover now one of the three stack linebackers? Do they bring in a fifty DB? Because I know how he used it at Cincinnati, and it was a complete a lot different than the way that Notre Dame has used their rover in the last couple of years, with the exception of 2020 with Jeremiah Koromoa. So, I think it just depends on what we call the rover. If, if they do what I think they're going to do. So again, give me the opportunity to change this down the road as we get more data. We haven't seen, we haven't really seen him run a practice yet at Notre Dame. If he does what I think he's going to do, the rover is going to become more of a coverage position ultimately when it's all said and done. If it's stays as that fifth DB guy, it's it, instead of. I actually think we might see like the bigger corner, big safety types as opposed to a linebacker safety hybrid. I think that's ultimately where they're going. They want more safety corner bodies there than linebacker bodies because, again, the way that college football is trending, that guy just needs to be a freaky athlete. And Notre Dame was able to get away with it this past couple years because of how Jeremiah Wusu was. But more often than not, you're not going to have a linebacker there. Unless it's a, a a rare kid. Now, as soon as I say that, I start thinking about Nolan Ziegler, who's a kind of that freaky kid that I'm talking about. But, again, he's a safety in high school that could be that player. But is he going to – if they go to a 3-3-5, three, three, does Nolan Ziegler stay outside and they're sort of in 3-4 personnel? Or if they go to a 3-3-5, three, three, is he now sort of like a sandbacker? Do they call that the rover? And then they bring in a fifth DB, pure DB? That I don't know. I can't answer that. We haven't seen that yet. So as soon as I do – I promise we'll talk about it. I, I do. KMA Preston, do you see, do do we get any commitments this month? Yeah, I I think they're going to get multiple commitments this month. Yeah, this is weird. Okay, so uh, let's see if we got some. We have a lot more questions. I'm going to try to get to. Um, Jason asks. Um, I'm sorry if I already discussed. Did you see Devin Jackson's insane track times? Ten five eight hundred meters, six nine eight and the sixty, both on a gimpy ankle and groin pool? I've had a lot of people hit me up on this, Jason, and that's great. But I have to see him on film. I mean, my big issue with Devin Jackson so far has been, I just don't know if he's a linebacker. He's a freaky athlete. And in most years, this is a no-brainer. You push hard for this guy because you can't teach that speed. But is he 6'1", 210? Or is he 6'2", 225? Those things kind of matter to me. Because one, maybe could eventually be an edge rusher at 235, 240. The other, he's a pure linebacker. So that's an interesting one, Jason, is... If you're only going to take three linebackers in this class, do you take a chance, knowing that you only got really one linebacker last year, you got no linebackers the year before, do you really take a chance on a freaky athlete that you don't know can play linebacker, or do you take more of a proven player that you know can play linebacker? I think that's the situation that he finds themselves, which is why I think taking a fourth, maybe even a fifth linebacker in this class might be the way to go, depending on if you have enough positional flexibility, which a guy like Nolan Ziegler does and then Devin Jackson would. So those are insane. Tra- and that's that would get me excited, Jason, if he was a receiver or a running back, I'd be fired up about those times. I mean, those are nuts, but I just got to see. I mean, I got to see if he can play football. I mean, we, we've seen this before with the Steve Filer, who's a freaky athlete. He just wasn't a very good football player. And, you know, so I just um, I, I got to see him. I, I wish. He's one guy I really wish we had junior film on, which is dumb because his entire state played football this year except his county, and that's why we don't have film of him, which is disappointing. So it, it, that's a risk. But if you fi- think you have the numbers to take a fourth or a fifth guy, you take it because – in in most years you take it. But this is a weird year because there's so many good linebackers on the board that somebody's going to have to get told no. And I, to me, I would tell no to the guy that I'm not sure he can play. Now, if they've seen more film than I have and they feel he can play – and you have those track times, and they think he can fill out and do all that, then 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 get it. Let's put it this way: if Notre Dame got Devin Jackson, I would not be upset. It's just in a perfect world, there's just a couple other guys that I'd probably prioritize over him, right? Based on what I've seen right now, Big Red has Notre Dame said anything about stadium capacity this year? I haven't seen, I haven't heard a thing. I think Notre Dame is going to wait as long as possible to announce anything on this because they're going to kind of see how other leagues are handling things. Because a big part of this too is. If the ACC opens things back up, that'll impact Notre Dame's decision. If if the Big Ten and the SEC open things back up and go full capacity or 75% capacity or 50% capacity, whatever, you're going to see Notre Dame more follow along in those lines as opposed to the leadership we showed this year in playing. Because the, the leadership in playing this year was about, we don't care if there's anybody in the stands or not. You know, I mean, Jack Swarbrick said what he said, but we all knew they weren't going to not play this year. And so I think that's kind of for me where it comes down to is I think there's going to be a lot What are the professional sports going to do NFL saying that they're going to open things completely back up. How does that impact Notre Dame You know when they go play in Chicago? So I, I think they're going to wait as long as possible, as long as they can wait to still get their season ticket sales and all that kind of stuff. I think they're going to wait a little while and just see how this plays out. How does this? you know, next wave of cases or vaccines or all these other kinds of things, how are they going to play out? I think they're going to wait as long as possible to have more information. And honestly, I don't have a problem with it in, in this situation. Get as much data, real scientific, cultural, whatever data you need to make this decision and then make it, you know, but get the data first. Don't make a decision that you then have to back. Don't say, Hey, we're going to open up in the fall and then something changes and you can't do that. Or don't say we're going to be 50% in the fall and then you change it in two months. Just give it time. You don't need to make that decision now. So just just give it some time. Devin and Ashley, um, do you think George Tack is going to get more targets? It just He's got to win the job first. I think right now he's going to get every opportunity this spring to become the number two tight end. But he's got two very talented players and Kevin Bauman and Kane Barong breathing down his neck. And he is going to, to have to beat those guys out first. Ryan McCarty, was it me or did Kyron look quite a bit faster at the pro day? Um, seems it could be dangerous out of the backfield, catching wheels and other routes. I think – I don't know if he looked quicker. I just think he didn't have pads on. And you're usually going to look quicker and faster when you don't have pads on. I think he would be a major weapon in the pass game. I'm dying for him to become more of a weapon in the pass game. And not just like swings and checkdowns, which are good. Those things are great. And that's where you can kind of develop some more of that efficiency. But using him as a route runner, they did that against BC and he looked great. Uh, I, I'd love to see him do things as out of the backfield, but also lining up a receiver. That's what makes him so so unique. You know what, Jacob we we should have a we should have a podcast just about this. This is an issue that's just gonna that's a big one, and I have a lot of thoughts on that. Let's maybe have a pot a live podcast one of these days when when that rule gets passed, talking about it because it's it's going to happen. I just hope they're smart enough to. To make sure that they've covered all their all their all their bases with that, um, Michael. So we we talked a little bit about about Quinshawn earlier. This is the running back from Alabama, Notre Dame, see Offered the comp I used, Mike was was Torian Folsom with more size and speed. He's not a burner by any stretch of imagination. but He's got really quick feet. He's a short strider, and I like short striders at running back uh, because those guys are usually always in position to make a cut. Great vision. His ability to read the second level is impressive. He's a natural runner. He, he can cut back. He can bounce. Uh, he's a physical kid, even, but he doesn't necessarily seek out contact unnecessarily. But if you're there between him and where he needs to go, he's going to run you over. But he's also quick enough to make moves. He's a real patient runner, but he also has the ability. And this is key. If you're going to be a patient runner, you better have a burst where you can plant your foot in the ground and just go. And he does that. He's one of the most natural running backs that Notre Dame has offered. He doesn't have the ceiling of some of the other players that Notre Dame has offered. But as far as a pure runner, he he's an impressive kid. He has some talent that um that I like. Here we go. All right, this is the question from Maddie K. I was looking for earlier earlier. Okay. I got two questions. What do you think would have been the outcome if the staff we had the last two years would have coached the 2015 team? What what do you uh have to see week 1 against Florida State to say we've evolved on offense? So that's a two-parter. So the first part of that question I don't know if I'd use the staff from the last two years because we've seen a lot of turnover with the staff. What I've what I've liked to say is, you know what I'd have loved, I would have loved Maddie to see the staff that Notre Dame had in 2017, and that was with obviously Chip Long and Elko as the new coordinators, Clark Lee as the linebackers coach. But then you still would have had Harry stand coaching the offensive line. I would have loved to even even if you just took the same offensive staff from 2015, which was good, not great. And you give them Mike Elko and Clark Lee, whew, with the talent they had. I, to me, that was Notre Dame's best chance to compete for a title. And for all the so, what are the things people say? Well, you need a dynamic quarterback. Check. Uh, you need explosive playmakers in the backfield. Check. Check. Right. CJ Prosser, Josh Adams. You need explosive playmakers on the outside. Check. 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 Will Fuller, Amir Carlisle, Chris Brown. Uh, you have to have a dominant offensive line. First round draft pick at left tackle, first round draft pick at left guard, second round draft pick at center, first round draft pick at right tackle, and a guy that would have been in the NFL for a long time in Steve Elmer if he didn't decide to walk away from football. You had one of the best offenses in the country, and for all the talk about how Notre Dame's problem isn't recruiting, if you look at the non-freshman classes, so like you know, fresh you know redshirt freshmen to seniors, Notre Dame had higher recruiting classes than Clemson in all but one. No, actually, if you include the freshman class, when Notre Dame and Clemson played each other in 2015. Notre Dame had a higher ranked recruiting class in four of the five previous years. And I believe the only year Clemson had a higher class was the freshman class. And if you look at the number of first, second, and third round draft picks that played in that game. So guys that weren't just on the bench that became great players later, but just guys that played in that on those teams. Notre Dame had more first, second, and third round draft picks than Clemson in 2015. Clemson beat Notre Dame, went on to play for the title, and not just play for the title, but they were competitive. Notre Dame, of course went 10 and three and went one and three against ranked opponents and the only ranked opponent they beat was Navy. That was coaching. that was not talent. that was not speed. Anyone want to tell me when when Amir Carlisle is your slowest receiver? you want to talk to me about speed? Come on. that team had it, all of it. you had all the talent you need. you just had terrible coaching on defense. You had a, a strength conditioning coach that had kind of lost his way and just wasn't able to have the impact anymore, and that team did not live up its to a poten- live up to its potential, and we just haven't seen quite that level of explosiveness on one team on offense since, and hopefully they can get that back. Okay, so uh, free J free, all the recruits that are coming in June, will they be on campus at the same time or individually? So what they'll probably do in this one, Free, is they're probably going to do what they've done in the past, which is they're going to have visit weekends. And so you'll have multiple kids kind of coming on the weekends. And so on the weekends, you'll have sort of the big visit weekends. You have the big pomp and circumstance, and you have kids in with their families, and you have the, the dinners. and Because it's a, official visits by then is the thought that they're going to have official visits. And so it's a, a big thing. And then, of course, you work out your individual time with each kid. The, it, there will be some, however, that they they plan to come during the week. So when you have kids during the week, normally, it's more individual. It's hey, we want to get that stud quarterback on campus by himself, or we want to get that stud the end or that really top kid uh, or this maybe this this player that's a, you know from a region he's never been up here. We really want to get him just up for a day. Those are when you'll see this sort of the individual attention given to a player but a lot of these weekend ones that they're talking about are going to be big events. It's going to be a lot of kids on campus and they, they've done a really good job prior to the pandemic situation. They were doing a really good job of being impactful on those weekends. It really upped their game in that regards. Let's see here. Uh, What we see, Kyron Williams line up in the slot with four wide this year. Um, I would say in when they go empty. Sure. But I don't want to see situations where if Michael Mayer's right, I don't want to see too many snaps where it's three receivers, Kyron Williams, and Chris Tyree. I want to see Michael Mayer on the field as often as possible. Here we go. Ryan Bunk. This is not a dumb question. This is a great question. Probably a bit of a dumb question, but is it possible to run RPOs with 12 and 13 personnel? Absolutely. You can even do it out of uh, sets where they're all attached. Look, if a team's going to play 10 in the box and put put on -on one-on-one on the outside, you can run your power, your counter, your inside zones. You can run whatever you want to run. And then you have a one-on-one outside. So if they're going to say, "Hey, look, we're going to play our corner off," and you know, because we need to have him be able to collapse to the middle to protect. If if you know if you're bringing ten in the box, you want your corner off to protect. As if they break through that first line, that corner has to be kind of that that last line of defense, so you can bang out cuts. You know, I've seen Notre Dame on a 12 personnel. Go back to 2018. I believe in the video that I did on YouTube, and it's also on the website, the RPO 101 video I did. I believe some of the the RPOs that Notre Dame was doing against Navy in 2012 and 2018 were out of 12 personnel. They were just it was just, hey, look, the windows open outside the tight end, the corners off. So you're just gonna pull it and you're gonna bang the outcut or bang the hitch to Chase Claypool. So go check out that film because that's a that's a legitimate question. Because if, if your best personnel is your tight ends and you need to play them more, you can still have RPOs. Alabama, if you go back and watch the Notre Dame game, and if you especially watch the SEC title game. Alabama was in 12 personnel more, most more often than they were in 11 personnel that game and they were still running RPOs out of that. So you can definitely do that. It, it's going to change some of the route concepts that you would run out of RP with RPOs, but you can absolutely do RPOs out of the 12 and 13 personnel. So that's a very good question. Um Here we go. Good question. Jonathan asks On social media, it seems that the player support for Drew Pine is almost unanimous. Will this have any effect on who is named the starter? No, it won't. I think the only way that it could have an impact is if for some reason we were in a situation where Drew Jack Cohn was not liked by teammates, but that's not the case from everything I've heard. I think players, I think what players say on social media, they're always going to support their teammate, even if deep down they know that it's somebody else. That's just that's just how it is. I, I wouldn't put too much into that. And a coach should never allow that to determine who's going to start. It has to be about who's a good leader and who gives your team the best chance to win. That has to be uh, what goes into it. Uh, Here we go. It's a good one. 2023 recruiting. Notre Dame is in the mix with a lot of impact talent for DBs in 2023 class. Anyone stand out to you as must-get prospects besides Sonny Styles? Now, Sonny Styles to me is probably more of a rover, I would say, than he is a safety. Uh, A guy that that, that Notre Dame fans need to get to know and is a 2023 DB is A.J. Harris. He's from the state of Alabama, I believe, from Phoenix City, 6'2", 180. We've had a couple articles about him. He was at a recent event, uh, the Under Armour in Georgia. We got to see him work out there as well. But this is a tremendously talented player, and he's a top 25 guy. And here's what's interesting about him. So you think top 25 player, Alabama's going to be all over him. He's going to leave. Well. The interesting thing about AJ is his dad's from Gary, Indiana. And AJ's grown up, his dad's a big Notre Dame fan. He's grown up with Notre Dame on TV on Saturday. So does that mean that Notre Dame's going to get him? No, they got to work. But Notre Dame is in a great position with him. Uh, Brian Smith, who does some stuff for us at Irish Breakdown, but he works mostly with SI All-American right now was at that event, and he said every time that AJ's asked about top schools by different reporters, Notre Dame is always one of the first, if not the first school to come up. So I think Notre Dame is in a great, great position there. Uh, They just got to close. But he's a guy that I would have my eye on if if I were you when you start looking at the 2023 uh, secondary players. Griff asks, how do you read into the new offers of Darren Agu and Quinshawn Sean Judkins? What I view this as, and I love it, is I think the staff is not, Until you are publicly committed to us, we're going to keep recruiting good players. We're going to keep expanding the board. We're going to keep going after top guys, and we're going to go recruit them. I love it because what happens if, yeah, you like DJ Wesolak and he's, you know, let's say he silently commits to you, but then all of a sudden that Bama offers and that changes things, or Ohio State offers and that changes things. Unless a kid is publicly committed to you and not visiting anywhere else, you keep recruiting. And right now there's three really good running backs on the board that Notre Dame needs to get one of them. But what if they don't? What do you do then? So the fact that they're going after Quinchon Judkins, who's a guy that you know he, they may decide to take him and those other guys t- decide to wait. From what I've seen at Darren Agu, if he wanted to come to the class, look, you know, hey, other guys on the board, you better figure some stuff out. So I am never against the staff going out and finding talented players. I only saw the little bit of Darren Agu from what we just showed. I haven't seen him yet, so this is more of a theoretical comment about him. But if he is someone you evaluate as good as the other players on the board, And he wants to come now, then you come now. A staff should always expand the board of top-level players. And that's something I've been begging Notre Dame to do for years, and they're doing it now. And so I love it. I don't view it necessarily as, does this mean they're not going to get player A, B, C, and D? I don't think so. I think it's the reality of we know that there's still a lot of work to be done and we can't risk, as a staff, we can't risk. This is, you know again, when I say we, I'm talking about from their perspective. We can't risk missing out and then not having – other good players on the board you just that's what Notre Dame have been doing for years They can't do that anymore and I think it's also about learning their lesson from last year with the Will Shipley thing they put all their eggs in the Will Shipley basket he goes to Clemson and then they're kind of stuck scrambling now they got lucky because it was a great running back year and some of the top schools is already filled up so you have Audric Estime and Logan Diggs around that you can go get but you can't take that chance every year so I love it all right Um, if you could choose a place for Notre Dame to play uh, a game in the future, where would it be? Mine would be Dublin. I'd say Virginia Beach so I can go back and visit my family and cover a game. But, no, I I think seriously, uh, I would love to see Notre Dame play like Oklahoma or uh, like in uh, Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium. I don't know what it is, but I think that would be awesome uh, to see them play that. And I've never understood why I've always felt that way. But anytime you start thinking about like where you'd like to see them play, that to me is one um i'd like to see a game back in dublin because my wife and i were going to go there to cover that game which would have been a lot of fun but of course that that got canceled when the pandemic hit so um that uh you know that that canceled that i would love to cover game my my heritage on my side of the family is irish i've always wanted to kind of go back and and trace my family where my ancestors haven't been in america i think since the i mean i don't think they're my understanding my family history is not until the 20th century so it would have been cool to kind of be able to trace some of that stuff so um and then of course i've never been to europe before so that i think be kind of cool um jason uh follow up to Devin Daxon, how would you rank um ceiling floor need scheme fit all taken account so i haven't jason i haven't done my points ranking which takes all those things to account so this is just going to be off the top of my head i'm going to come up with a big board um linebacker is going to be one of the top ones I do. I'm going to start working on those now that we've hired Eric. It's going to give me more time to focus on just the analysis. There have been times when I've just, my gut says I like this kid better. And then I have my grading system and I grade everybody out and guys rank ahead of other guys. So this could change when I come up my big board. But for me, how I rank that group, you combine ceiling plus floor plus needs scheme fit and all those kind of things. Um, boy, that's tough. I, Man, that's cause that's such a good group. Okay, first of all, Cheeks, Cheeks and Jackson are at the are, are the bottom two for me. I'd probably put Jackson in the bottom just because his floor is lower than everybody else. Cheeks is a very good player. I just I think the other guys are better. Uh, I'd put Ziggler probably ahead of Cheeks. Ziggler and to me, oh boy. Ziggler and Sneed would probably be the next two for me. Uh, just because I think with Sneed, I still wonder what position he's gonna play. I think he's still a guy without a position, kind of so far. And I, if they're going to do more three three five, I feel a lot better about Jalen Snead. But he's a guy that you know you say, hey, look, he's probably a great edge rusher, but at six one two ten, that's not what he's going to be doing full time. But he's a really outstanding player. And then my top three would be, or my top two would be, would be uh, Burnham and Tui Alamaka. And the reason Tui Alamaka is that high when we talk the need, because you said need, right? Uh, need and scheme fit. I think there's a need for a pure Mike. And that's why, even though if I was doing like a top 100 ranking, some of those guys would probably be ranked higher than him in a top 100 ranking. But you asked more of a football question, which is based on the need and the scheme fit. I think they need a pure mic. And I think they need a pure mic that's a thumper. Could could Josh uh, Burnham turn into that player? Yes. But I kind of like having Burnham as a will and potentially a guy that can rush off the edge as well. And if you plug him into the mic, I think you limit some of Josh Burnham's versatility I think the reason I like Junior so much is because he is a pure Mike linebacker. Now, he could do other things, but he is a pure Mike linebacker, and I think there's a great need for that. So that's how I would rank those guys um, off of that. So uh, let's see here. (sighs) Brian Dembo, any additional silent commit updates? No, I don't have anything other than what we talked about last week. I do believe there are at least two players that are silently committed, but until they – visit and get on campus and those kind of things. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll never know. All right. What are your uh, DBZ? What are your sources saying about pine truly getting a shot at winning the QB one? Look, I've heard that they've, he's got a shot. I've heard that he's a legitimate contender for the starting quarterback job. I, I think that the expectation is, is that Jack Cone eventually is going to take hold. Cause remember Jack Cohn has been on campus since January Drew Pine has been in this offense for over a year. So Drew's got that going for him, even though that, even though Jack Cohn has more game experience, which matters to me, he has, Drew has more experience in the system. Plus, he's a more talented player than I think a lot of people give him credit for. If Drew Pine were three inches taller and had the same exact skill set that he has now, a lot of the people that doubt him would love him because they'd see 6'3 and they would think NFL quarterback. And I just, People obsess over that, and I just don't care about height anymore. I mean, Kyra, Kyler Murray was 5'10", and he was the number one draft pick in the NFL draft. So I just I don't care as much about that. I think Drew Pine is a better quarterback than people think. I just think ultimately Jack Cohn's going to win the job. I'm at the point now with the quarterback job, however, that if they want to give Pine a legitimate shot and Pine wins the job, fine, I don't care. I think there's enough talent at quarterback right now where I don't really have a I don't really have a dog in this race. I mean, I, I just don't. I don't care who wins it. I think Jack Cohn would probably be the best based on the combination of experience and and deep ball ability and things like that that I've seen from him. But if Drew Pine beats him out, great, beats him out. They're gonna be fine. You know, because what I've said about Drew Pine is he is the great, he's the perfect point guard quarterback in that, you know, maybe he's not a great individual talent. He's not a future top five NFL draft pick. He doesn't have, you know, the the arm of Zach Wilson and Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence but he's a smart kid my sources have raved about his ability to pick up the offense since the day he arrived at Notre Dame he just gets it he knows how to go with he knows where to go with the football and as he gets more experience take his first team reps he makes some mistakes like we saw him make in practice the other day he's going to learn from those and become a really good football player is that going to be good enough to start I don't know but if it is Look, what have I said about this? They need more receivers to play. They need to use Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree together. They need to get different. They need to spread the ball around. So you need a point guard quarterback to do all that. Make your decisions on RPOs. Be accurate. Get the ball to this guy, that guy. Take what the defense wants to give you and and roll with it. And Drew Pine fits that perfectly. Tyler Buckner would be great there. I don't care who wins the job among those three, as long as it's the guy that gives you the best chance to win football games right now. And... I would like to see a number two. If Buckner's in that mix, then I'd like to see him play. I'd like to see a find a role for him, but I don't want to see him start necessarily. But if he's the the best player for the job, then play him. I think that's where all Notre Dame fans should be right now. I I, I think we should avoid getting to these camps of no, I like Jack Cohn or I like Drew Pine or I want the younger guy or the older guy or whatever. Who's gonna give him the best chance to go win games this year? And that and, and and if it's close, then you maybe go with the guy that's got more eligibility, but I I don't think it's going to necessarily be close when it's all said and done. I think someone's going to seize hold of this job and take it over, whether that's Jack Cohn, excuse me, Jack Cohn, or uh, Drew Pine or Tyler Buckner. I don't really care. I just I want someone to go out there and play better than what we've seen at quarterback in recent years. We'll wrap up here. We don't have a whole lot more questions, so we're going to wrap up with this uh, next two Notre Dame two one six four. I don't see Brian Kelly changing offensive philosophy or much at all, unless he thinks they should and it's been shoved in his face and that he has to. He's a stubborn person and coach. What do you think? I think he's very stubborn. Um, I think he's very resistant to change. I absolutely believe that. Uh, I think a lot of what you said is true, but I also think that Brian Kelly, more than more than stubborn, more than his desire, I've often felt in the past that if I said – I I should probably shouldn't say this about a player because I feel like if I say it, Brian Kelly's going to be like, forget it. We're going to do the opposite thing because he doesn't want the media to be right. Uh, it's very strange, his relationship with the media, even though the Notre Dame media is very favorable to him by and large. Uh, uh, he still acts real sensitive sometimes whenever he gets any bit of criticism and he'll just push back against it and create narratives and just never give into it. it. just It's strange. But beyond that, I think a big part of Brian Kelly, even greater than that, is he wants to win. Brian Kelly cares very much about winning and he cares even more about his legacy. And his legacy is never going to be complete without a title. And he can, he can spin it all he wants about academics and all this kind of stuff. And he's tried to tamp down expectations in a lot of ways, which I've had a problem with, but ultimately he knows he's got to win a title. And I think the way that Notre Dame played Bama this year and the way that Notre Dame played Clemson two years ago, and the fact that Notre Dame beat Clemson this year, you know, I, I think Brian Kelly looks at that and says, we're close we are we're close and we got to figure out a way to get over the hump and we're there defensively or at least very very close we got to make these changes offensively and to me if if the offense is the reason that Notre Dame goes out and gets over the hump then Brian Kelly's going to get even more praise than he would if they won because they won a 17 to 14 game because that's been his considered his area of expertise so I think he he's willing to change if he genuinely believes that's going to be the thing that helps his team win a championship. I, I do think he's open to it. I think we're going to see some RPOs this year. Will they run enough for it to be impactful? I don't know. I think we're going to see them throw the ball around a little bit more. Um, but ultimately, Brian Kelly wants to win a championship. And if changing the offense is the way to do that, and he's and he can be He's going to have to be dragged there by – not by me or or anybody else. It's going to be by Tommy Reese and by Jeff Quinn and by Lance Taylor. If those guys can say, hey, Coach, we have the personnel to do this. We believe we can do this. Here's our plan. I think he'll say, yeah, let's do it. I, I do uh, because I think ultimately at the end of the day he wants, he wants to win. Last question, DBZ, what would your ideal starting receiver – right, wide right receiver rotation be? I really don't have one. Um, I want to see them battle. I, I think if if I were to look at it this way, okay, so let's look at it this way. What would be the best rotation based on what I perceive to be the talent at the position? So we're just looking upside and all that kind of stuff. I think everybody's healthy. Your veterans are Braden Lindsay and and Kevin Austin. You're, you're going to have Avery Davis is going to be a big part of what I do. He's going to be a slot. I'm going to put him in the backfield at times. I'm going to use him a lot of different ways. And then I'm going to have Z- Jordan Johnson, Xavier Watts, and in, to some degree, not quite as much as the others, but I'm going to find a way for Lorenzo Styles to get touches. I would give Lorenzo Styles every opportunity in the world to become my punt returner this year. I know some people don't like that because he's a freshman, but he's a talented kid. He's a mature kid. He's a strong kid for size. I would. That's a way that I would get him touches. But that would be my rotation. Are there other guys that could play? Joe Wilkins is a good solid football player, but to me. His ceiling is much lower than other guys. So, when you talk about ideal starting, you know, what are the guys that can allow you to go score points against Alabama? Well, who are the guys that can allow you to go score points against Ohio State and Clemson? And those guys, to me, are are is that group? That's that's where you find that group. And to me, none of those guys are necessarily play ninety five percent of the reps like Miles Boykin and Chase Claypool did in eighteen and nineteen. None of those guys are that high volume players. So take advantage of that. Mix it up. Give teams different looks because what you have in that group. Oh, and I Lawrence Keys. I'm sorry, I forgot about Lawrence Keys. What you have in that group is you have a very diverse set of skills. You have some guys that are vertical players, some guys that are one-on-one players, some guys that are after the catch players, some guys that are work the zone players. And when you use more of that variety of skill, then you give teams a lot more to think about. I mean, Nick Saban earlier was talking about defending Notre Dame, and it, it, you could just tell it's like. It, it, it wasn't that hard because we can match up with them body for body. So we just we put our big personnel and we can match up against them. Well, Notre Dame didn't have anything to counter that with. You have a deeper rotation. There's going to be some games where like, you know what, man, they're, they're taking Jordan out. He's got this big corner. They're just taking Kevin or Jordan out. So you do things with your faster, smaller guys. You move Jordan or Kevin around and you do different things. I love the versatility there. And if they can create some versatility there, then I feel like you have the kind of receiver rotation that you need to go out there and be a dynamic, explosive offense. Look, everybody talks about how you know, Notre Dame doesn't have this playmaker and that playmaker. I firmly and wholeheartedly disagree with that. I think that Notre Dame has a lot of talent. They have they have depth of talent. Maybe where they lack a, Michael, a Will Fuller, they make up for it by having six or seven guys that can really play. And I think they have to figure out ways to do that and say, hey, look, their dude is a tight end this year. Their dudes are running back. So your receivers are top complementary players, but you can have explosive complementary players. And that's where I think Notre Dame needs to take advantage. They have to be willing to scheme their way into success much more than they did in the past. The Notre Dame offense that they've run the last few years is an offense that requires elite players. You have to have elite players to be successful against Bama and Clemson and Ohio State running the offense at Notre Dame ran. The things that I'm calling for, the changes I'm calling for, are things that if you have talented players, this that's great. But these are ways that you can scheme your way into success. And then if you can then scheme your way into success with great players, which is what Alabama does, has done, you can score 48, 49 points a game. But if you don't have elite players, and like like North Carolina – North Carolina scored almost forty-two points per game this year. They don't have any first-round picks. Devontae Williams and Michael Carter and Diami Brown are not going to be first-round picks. Some most of them are probably going to be second-round picks. They don't have a Devontae Smith, but they still scored forty-two points a game. What could Notre Dame do with the line that they have, with the tight ends they have, with the backs they have, with the with the the depth of athleticism and speed they have at receiver? What could Notre Dame do with that kind of offense? That's my whole point. And so, I think that finding a receiver rotation that allows you to mix up your skill on the perimeter to be that explosive team that you have guys can take a five-yard pass or a a screen and turn it into a 20-25 yard gain is going to make this offense so much more difficult to defend because now you have to widen your defense and that's when the run game really takes over I have never and will never advocate for Notre Dame not wanting to be a good running team they should always be a great running team because You can always recruit great linemen at Notre Dame. You can always recruit great tight ends at Notre Dame. You can always recruit really good backs at Notre Dame. So, why would you be fooled enough to say, We're going to throw it 75 times a game when you can recruit that kind of talent? That's not what I'm advocating for. What I'm saying is push the tempo, spread the ball around, make it more difficult to defend your run game. And just going 13 personnel all day does not make it more difficult to defend your run game. It may make it difficult for teams that aren't as good as you, but it makes it easier. For Clemson to defend you. It makes it easier for Alabama to defend you. It makes it easier for Ohio State to defend you. And so if coach can make those final changes and take better advantage of the receivers he has, he is someone that I believe could take this team and, and lead them to a, a championship. So, um, Hey Dylan, I appreciate this. I, I agree wholeheartedly with Dylan. Can we all smash the like button for this great content? I would really appreciate that very, very much. Uh, Tracy Tipton. Thanks. Great show as always. Thanks for being in there. And yes, I know you got it right. Uh, but everybody, thank you so much for being part of the show today. I'm hoping to have Vince back by next Friday. If for some reason he can't be back, I'm trying to work on get some other guests. I had a guest that I was trying to get lined up today, but he had something going on, so he was not able to make it. We'll obviously continue putting out content on the YouTube channel. So hit the subscribe bell or subscribe button on the note on our YouTube channel. Hit the notification bell so you always get updated when we have stuff coming out. Subscribe to us on wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please, you see it right down there, right? irishbreakdown.com. Sign up. We've got Eric Rutter pumping out recruiting news now. we got a lot going on. I'm excited about the spring, excited about what the summer is going to do, and I want y'all to be along for the ride. So uh, for the rest of the Irish Breakdown crew that couldn't be here, I'm Brian Driscoll. Y'all have a great, awesome, safe rest of your weekend, and we will talk to you again very, very soon. <laughs>